Well, turn with me now to the back of your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. As Tom mentioned at the beginning of the service, this morning we're going to look at our Psalm of the Month, Psalm 45. It's the first Lord's Day of the month, so we'll be looking at Psalm 45 in just a moment. But to provide a little bit of context for understanding that psalm, we're going to look first at Revelation 21 and 22, in which we see what the sons of Korah in Psalm 45 imagined coming to fruition in the vision of John on the island of Patmos. So Revelation 21, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter, skip right down into 22. You may recall that when John first wrote this, he didn't put in chapters 21 and 22. It was all one stream of thought. So I'm going to read Revelation 21 right into 22, and I'll end with verse 7. Revelation 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now I saw the new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people." God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then... One of the seven angels who had seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone. Like a jasper stone clear as crystal, she also had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, its breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel, 
The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the, city of the, and the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the temple are its, and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no sun, need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light for the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Amen. John, alone on the island of Patmos, has a church in which he lives that looks anything like the church that he sees in the sky. This church, which he sees through the power of the Holy Spirit, is radiant and glorious beyond compare. There is no shadow, no darkness, no despair, no disease, no death, no any other negative thing that starts with D. There is nothing bad at all. She is full of light and beauty and glory and color. Her streets are gold. You know the gold that's as clear as glass. You guys know that gold, right? I've never heard of such a thing. Yet I imagine it is beautiful beyond compare. Its gates are a single pearl. You know those pearls that you find in the ocean that are as big as a city gate. I've never heard of such a thing. Yet it is so glorious and beautiful. And it is not how the church appears so often to us. Yet what is the difference? What is the difference between the church in which we live that so often is full of sin and ugliness and despair and darkness and this church which John sees that is so full of beauty and glory? 
We heard the refrain again and again and again and again throughout these verses. And I will be with them. And I will be with them. The Emmanuel has come to fruition. It is the presence of Jesus that makes us bright and beautiful. It is the presence of Jesus that makes us glorious and good. With that in mind, turn back in your Bibles to our Psalm of the Month, Psalm 45. We will this Lord's Day take a brief break from our sermon series in the book of Acts, and we will look instead at the Psalm of the Month, Psalm 45. Like Psalm 44, this is a psalm of the sons of Korah, specifically a contemplation of theirs. But in Psalm 44, there's a fascinating contrast for us to see here. I won't spend much time on this, but just think about it later. Psalm 44 is really focused on kind of how tough it is in life. Psalm 45 is focused on the exact opposite, how wonderful it is in Christ. Psalm 45, hear again the word of the Lord. To the chief musician set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women at your right hand. Stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore... The people shall praise you forever and ever. Amen and amen. Some musical masterpieces take many years 
to make. Even decades of discipline and devotion to get every note in the right place, to get the syllables and the lyrics to align with the melody and the harmony. On the other hand, some master musicians have discovered that some of their best works can come with a burst of brilliance. One musician that we've heard in our house was actually telling the story of how he's written thousands of songs, most of which take him from a few months to a few years to craft. But his number one hit, the most popular song he ever wrote, took him 45 minutes from start to finish. Melody, harmony, lyrics, all of it was done in 45 minutes. So intense was the inspiration. In like manner, Psalm 45 comes bursting out of the sons of Korah with an intensity, a passion, a volume that we cannot help but be stirred by. Notice in the first verse, the sons of Korah are again deep in contemplation, meditating on a theme, but but this time the theme is one of love. Specifically in verse 1, it is love for the king, or perhaps it is love by the king. Whether it is love for the king or love from the king, I'll let you decide as we go through the text. But notice especially that the sons of Korah are so overcome by these two themes, love and king, that when they put them together, like baking soda and vinegar, there is a volcanic eruption in their souls. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. When I mix love and Jesus, my heart erupts with a good theme. Have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever stirred together in the pot of your heart love and Jesus and found that silence was impossible? Singing must come. Because there is such intensity of passion within. The sons of Korah find that not only is their heart pulsing and swelling with this theme, but their tongue is ready to talk about it. Their tongue is a ready writer. Like a fountain pen, it flows swift on the page, and the words come easy. There's no sitting there and pondering, Does this rhyme with this? Does it fit the meter? Oh, I need to move this phrase up here. No, no, none of that. They speak and out comes this song. So powerful is the topic. So sweet the thesis. My friends, is this how you feel about Jesus? Is this what Jesus is like in your life? That when you mix Christ and love inside your heart, out comes this song of celebration. Out comes these words. My friends, if you're anything like me, you are far more prone to sinful silence than joyful celebration. If I were to ask your spouse and your children, would they affirm 
You can't stop that one from talking about Jesus. Every other word is something about Jesus and how wonderful he is. If I asked your coworkers and friends and neighbors, would they say, that tongue is always bubbling with the praises of Jesus? Beloved, I have good news for us. We have a psalm that trains our hearts to love, that trains our tongues to talk, that embeds itself into the very roots of our soul and brings out this beauty, the beauty of Christ. You see, Jesus is so wonderful. Jesus is so wonderful that we should pray constantly, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Beloved, Jesus is so wonderful, let us pray constantly, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now to persuade us to be constantly praying, come quickly, the sons of Korah present to us the beauty of Jesus' person and the beauty of Jesus' work. The classic two-part approach to Christology. If you want to know about Christ, you have to know who he is and what he does. In verses 2 through 9, the sons of Korah give us the person of Christ. Who is he? And they say three things about him. First, he is personally majestic. Secondly, he is perpetually righteous. And thirdly, he is perfectly happy. That's for you, Tim. I know he's in the back, but he's always looking for the alliteration. Personally majestic, perpetually righteous, and perfectly happy. Notice first in verses 2 through 5 that this Jesus is so wonderful, he is majestic in his person. Verse 2 says that he is more fair than all the sons of men. Of all the humans that have ever been born, he is the most beautiful. Jesus is the most lovely human that ever existed. Now, that sounds like a contradiction of Isaiah 53, doesn't it? Because Isaiah 53 specifically says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. He had no beauty that we should desire Him. But of course, the sons of Korah aren't talking about His facial features or the shape of His manly physique. They are talking about His character. Because beauty is found in the heart and character of humanity not its shape. Indeed, he is the most lovely man that has ever lived because in verse 2, grace is poured upon his lips. Every word that comes from him is a word of goodness, a word of love, a word of blessing and of peace. Every conversation is filled with good news. Every conversation is filled with encouragement. He is the most beautiful man that has ever come because everything that comes from him is beautiful. But most preeminent in the minds of the sons of Korah this morning is his beauty in battle. In verses 3 through 5, the sons of Korah imagine this king girded with sword, seated, seated upon his steed, ready to ride. And he rides with glory, majesty, and prosperity. He is a triumphant king. He sits enthroned in glory. He rides victorious over his enemy with sword upon his thigh. His arrows are sharp in the hearts of his enemies. 
they fall beneath him. He has a majesty that conquers all his enemies. Notice that there is no space devoted to the greatness of his army. He needs none. He is majestic in battle. He is beautiful in armor. He is mighty in war. His arrows overcome the enemies. His sword lays waste the nations. He is a king, glorious and great. But notice in verse 4, the three purposes for which he fights. Not only is he awesome and majestic in power, but he only rides for the cause of truth, humility, and righteousness. He never fights for his own glory. He never fights for his own wealth or well-being. He's not that self-seeking conqueror that we know from history. No, he is the triumphant king whose majesty and glory is expressed for one purpose. To preserve the truth. To set free humanity from the lies. To bring into the world light and truth, wisdom and knowledge. He rides for humility. That is the humble, the poor and the needy. So sang Hannah and Mary in Psalm 113. He has come that he might lift the poor and the needy. That he might exalt the humble. That he might bring down the power of kings and nations. He rides thirdly for righteousness. To bring about justice and goodness in the earth. This is how wonderful our Jesus is. And boy do we need him in battle, don't we? That when we stand toe to toe with temptation, we need to pray for this guy to show up. Come quickly, conquering king, and destroy my temptation. And when we find ourselves neck deep in our sins, and shame and disgrace rises up over our heads, we need this guy to show up, don't we? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and conquer my sin and my shame. Come quickly, you who are beautiful in battle, because I am constantly at war. In this life in which we are beset by so many enemies, we are in desperate need of a king who is as wonderful as this one. Able to win the fight and willing to do so for those who are poor and needy and oppressed. Not only is he wonderful in battle, he is wonderful in how he rules. You know that some kings are awesome on the field of battle and really lousy in the boardroom. They're good at taking out the bad guys. They're not actually good at ruling the nation. But not this king. No, he comes home and he sits on his throne in verses 6 and 7. All the enemies have been defeated through his personal majesty. And now his throne at home is established in perpetual righteousness. He rules forever and ever. And the permanence of his rule rests not in his conquest of others alone. But specifically in verses 6 and 7, it rests in the quality and character of his rule. Namely, that he is righteous. In his right hand is a scepter of righteousness. Most kings 
wave the symbol of authority with a stick of gold bejeweled. Not this one. He waves a rod of righteousness. Not of wealth and of power and of privilege, but of justice and rightness. And not only does he merely hold it, he holds this symbol to be sure, but even more so, friends, it's the very essence of his rule. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He loves righteousness. He doesn't just wave it around like a scepter. He has it embedded in his heart, rooted in his soul. Everything he does is righteous. All his rules are righteous. He is altogether righteous. And he is a hater of wickedness. This is the permanence of his throne, that he does all things well. Here is a wonderful king that we want in our lives, is it not? When we see the injustice that fills our homes, when siblings oppress siblings, when we see the injustice that fills our city and the powerful prey on the poor, when we see the injustice that fills our land, what do we shout, good Americans that we are? Oh, we need a new president. Well, we're half right. We do need something new, but not president, king. We need a righteous ruler who loves righteousness, who will cause righteousness to flow like a river in justice, like an ever-flowing stream. This is the one we need. We need to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come rule over this country. Come rule over this city. Come rule over this heart. This is what I need, a conquering king of personal majesty. This is what I need, a righteous ruler of, of perpetual righteousness. But then thirdly, he is in fact perfectly happy. Therefore, in verse 7, this conquering king of great majesty, this righteous ruler of endless reign, he is perfectly happy. You know all those kings and all those rulers and leaders who are so constantly devoted to work? You know all the workaholics of Boston who are so constantly devoted to work? They're always getting better. They're always improving. You know what they're never doing? Enjoying life. Not this guy. Not this king. No, Jesus is so wonderful. He knows how to get to the top and he knows how to enjoy being there. Notice in verses 7 through 9, he has been anointed by God with the oil of gladness. He is saturated with happiness. He is soaked beyond all his companions with a spirit of joy and happiness. Do you know those people, when they walk into the room, it's a little brighter? When they walk into the room, all of a sudden the conversation lifts and laughter starts to make its way in. You know those people? They're like walking bags of joy. This is Jesus. Jesus is a fountain of happiness. He comes into the room and all his companions begin to laugh. And all the world looks brighter and beautiful. His garments are scented like a garden. When he passes you in the hallway, you smell it for hours. Myrrh, aloes, and cassia. 
When you sit in the presence of Jesus, it's like sitting in the most fragrant herb garden imaginable. He is there in the palace of ivory, the ESV says, with musical instruments. Have you guys been to the little museums throughout New England who all have little collections of scrimshaw? I'm so tempted. How many of you have no clue what word I just said? Scrimshaw, the carvings in little ivory handle and bone. Ivory that is so rare, so expensive, so precious, so protected today. Could you imagine a palace made out of ivory? Not the little handle of a knife. A palace made out of ivory. In which there is music, in which there is the scent of a garden, in which there is a man who is oozing with joy and with happiness, in in which there are servants without number who are all the daughters of kings. His household staff are princesses. And there is his queen at their head at his right hand, robed in the most rich and rare gold on earth, the gold of Ophir. Here is one who knows how to have a good time. Who is perfectly happy and gives perfect joy to all those who gather to him. This is our Jesus. Is he not wonderful beyond compare? Well, this is who he is. Personally majestic, perpetually righteous, perfectly happy. But the sons of Korah don't stop there. That alone is worth a sermon. Just to stop and to think about who Jesus is and how he is the great king for whom your heart longs and the satisfaction of every soul. But then secondly, what he does. Verses 10 through 17. The sons of Korah give us three things that he does. First, he desires you. Does that break your heart? I always find this section difficult. It's one thing to preach the objective reality of the glory of Jesus Christ. And to build him up and to push him into the very heights of your heart. And to say no matter how wonderful you think Jesus is, he is far more wonderful than you ever dreamt. Far more majestic, far more righteous, far more wonderful with joy. It's another thing to turn around and look you in the eye and say, you know what he wants more than anything in life? You. Does that not break your heart? He desires your beauty, verse 11. He desires you to come in beauty. You know why that breaks my heart? Because I can't find beauty. Not in me. I see sin and I see ugliness. And I say the king is confused. He's so wonderful. Why would he desire us? We're but a little church. We are but weak and few in gift. What is it that a great and awesome king like this could possibly want from us? The sons of Korah whisper to the church, No, listen to me, daughter. Hear your father on his final day. This is the last word that I have for you, my daughter. Abandon your past. Forget your father. 
Forget this life to which you were born. Forget these earthly ambitions. Put to death what is earthly in you. No, indeed, the king will desire you in repentance. Have you not realized, dear friends, that this king is so wonderful, he finds repentant sinners irresistible? You know what he calls beauty? Your tears of repentance. You know what he calls glory and majesty? Your sorrow for sin. Your broken, hurting, humble heart. Did you see what the qualification in Revelation 21 is to drink from the river of life? You have to be thirsty. That's the only qualification. Did you see what the qualification is to eat from the tree of life in Revelation? You have to be hungry. That's it. My friends, he is so wonderful. He desires sinners to come to him. He desires the beauty of repentance and sorrow for sin. He calls and he says, turn away. Turn away from that earthly life that cannot please you. Turn away from those false gods and those idols that you have made. Turn away from sin. Come. This is what I find beautiful. This is what I desire. The broken and contrite heart. This is what he does. He loves and welcomes sinners. He loves and welcomes the repentant. You know what else he does? He unites them to himself. Not only does he greatly rejoice in the beauty of repentance, not only does he greatly desire that we, the ugly ones of the world, should come in the beauty of repentance. He pledges to unite us to himself and enrich us, enrobe us, and rejoice us. Notice in verses 12 through 15. The daughter of Tyre shall come with a gift. The rich of the people will seek out your favor. By daughter of Tyre, he means the people of Tyre, the city of Tyre, which at that time was the richest trading post in all the world. He means by this that all the wealthy and powerful peoples of the world will present their gifts to the church. The bride of Jesus Christ will be so greatly desired by him that he will bestow upon her that same personal majesty with which he humbled the nations in verses 2 through 5. Do you remember what he was doing? He was sitting on a horse conquering the nations. And what are the nations doing in verse 12? They're celebrating his bride. They are giving gifts to the church. They are seeking their, her favor, literally the smile of her face. They are seeking the light of her face. All the nations humbled under the great king in verses 2 through 5 are here celebrating the bride of Christ because she is united to Christ. She has entered into his personal majesty. Have you considered, my saints, that Jesus has given to you the kingdom-conquering majesty that he possesses? There is no nation on this earth that can stand toe-to-toe with the church of Jesus Christ. None have ever done so. And the ones that now live will not. They will give gifts to the bride of Christ, to the church of Jesus Christ, because he has bestowed upon his bride his majesty. 
Secondly, he has enrobed her. He has dressed her in beautiful gowns. In verses 13 and 15, she has a gown beyond compare. She is glorious within an ivory palace. Now, remember, this is a palace made of ivory, filled with music, smelling like a garden, in which there is constant laughter and joy. And yet, in that environment, she still manages to stand out. That's kind of impressive. This is quite the, the fashion here. Her gown is woven with threads of gold, but not boring old gold, not plain old ordinary yellow gold. No, in verse 14, it's many-colored gold. How many of you know gold that's not yellow? This is full of color and light and beauty. She is radiant beyond imagination, and she is coming in robes of glory. Again, from Revelation 21 and 22, we see that the robes in which she is dressed are specifically labeled the righteous deeds of the saints. That is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Verses 6 and 7. The throne that is established in righteousness pours out righteousness upon the people of God. And the royal daughter, that is the church, is robed in the righteousness of Christ. Just as we possess the personal majesty of Jesus, such that the nations should submit to the church, so even more so the church has the imputed righteousness of Christ, that we should be robed in holy splendor. If you don't think this gets better, just wait. Verse 14 and 15. She is surrounded by her virgin companions. All her friends and fellows come to her. Do you know what generally happens? It's much lamented in our society. To young ladies who find a young man and get married, all her friends lament that she has disappeared from society. Not this one. She gets to bring all her friends into the palace with her. Her fellowship is unbroken. Her friendship is untarnished. Rather, in verse 15, they come in in the fullness of joy. With gladness and rejoicing, they enter the ivory palace. They enter the halls of music. They enter the sense of the garden. They enter into the full joy of the king who has gone before them. Do you see, my friends, the beauty of the church? The church who has the personal majesty of Christ, that all the nation should seek her smile. The church that has the imputed righteousness of Christ robing her that she should walk in holiness before him. The church that dwells in the very heart of happiness who has been brought into that sinless, stainless palace of Christ and said, here dwell, here live. This is your home now, the celestial kingdoms of our God. My friends, we are surrounded by the fellowship of happiness. Indeed, the saints of the Most High God. That we together should have a fullness of joy as Jesus longed for in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. We are together united in Christ Jesus taught for the fullness of joy. That we might have a complete joy. In this way... He has united us to himself. 
and bestowed upon us all that is him, that he who possesses personal majesty, he who possesses perpetual righteousness, he who possesses perfect happiness has now given it to his bride. Now, as much as I want to just talk about Jesus, let me throw in there shamelessly, husbands, this is what Paul tells you to do. To lay down your life for your bride. To love with everything you have. Because this is the kind of husband we have in Christ. One who has given us not just his stuff, not just his house, his very self. He has given us his majesty, his righteousness, his happiness. He has given us himself. It is in this context that we come to the final thing that Jesus does. Verses 16 and 17. Jesus is exalted forever. There are three memorials which the church here promises to make for her husband and king. At last, here in the final two verses, the bride finally speaks. The sons of Korah give word to her heart. And she says to her husband and head, In the place of your fathers, I will give you sons. The church embraces the call of the Great Commission and says, We will bear you children, King Jesus. We will make disciples of the nations. We will bring forth your sons and daughters. We will present them for baptism. We will raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we will see through the ordinary means of grace how King Jesus makes princes of our offspring. Not only will there be this living memorial that from generation to generation, Jesus shall have a church. Fathers shall be supplanted by sons. And then grandsons and great-grandsons will come until at last they begin debating how to celebrate the 125th anniversary of their congregation. Is it not marvelous? The church has had children for generations that Jesus should always have a living memorial here on Antrim Street. But secondly, they have a memorial of speech. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. The bride of Christ, the church of Christ, pledges to speak the name of Jesus. All generations will hear it. My spouse will hear the name of Jesus, says the church. My children will hear the name of Jesus, says the church. And indeed, from generation to generation, the name of Jesus will linger on so that every generation will learn to bow the knee and confess with the tongue that Jesus is Lord. He saves will be proclaimed to generation to generation. This is the mission of the church. This is the priority of the church. We will raise up in this house for our king those who know his name. But then we will have a memorial of song. They say in verse 17, the final line, therefore the people shall praise you forever and ever. Throughout all of human history, humanity will sing of Jesus. 
What shall they sing? So many hymns have come and gone. So many praise songs. And yet Psalm 45 stands. A hymn of praise to the glory of Christ. An undiminished declaration of the greatness and wonder of Christ. A reminder to the church. He and he in himself is altogether lovely. But even more so, he has been lovely toward you. He has desired you. And he has brought you into intimate union with himself and bestowed upon you all his spiritual blessings. And he has given to you this one call. Make disciples. Teach them my name. And teach them to sing this song. That Jesus might be sung in Psalm 45 from age to age, forever and ever. When we sing in just a moment from Psalm 45, several of us as Reformed Presbyterian married couples will see in our imaginations and memories the day we wed. It is very common in the Reformed Presbyterian Church to marry to the singing of Psalm 45. But I submit to you, every Christian everywhere can sing Psalm 45, not looking back to an earthly wedding, but looking forward to a heavenly wedding. Dear saints, this is a psalm that teaches us that Jesus is so wonderful. We should pray that he comes quickly. We should pray like they do in the Song of Solomon. Come like the stag on the mountains. Come swiftly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come and be wonderful in our lives. Dear saints, your Jesus is so wonderful. Pray that he comes quickly. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day in which the sun is shining in full strength, in which the sky is full of color and light and beauty, in which the air is full of warmth, in which the trees and flowers are robing themselves with majesty, in which all of creation is crying out, Great is our God. We give you thanks for this beautiful day in which this beautiful psalm has set before us a beautiful Savior. We give you thanks that he is wonderful, that he is great and awesome and good, and we give you thanks that he has loved us, that he has redeemed us, he has brought us to himself, that he has united us to him in everlasting bonds, that when we put off these earthly marriages we will put on a heavenly marriage forever in Christ. And we give you thanks, our God, for such a husband, such a head, such a king as Jesus. And pray that you would increase our longing for him, that you would intensify our passion to see him, 
that you would indeed give us a weariness of this world that longs for the life that is to come. And so teach us to pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Our Father, work within us this prayer that we would daily pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we pray this morning, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This we pray in his name. Amen.